real privilege. No, oh, I think I'm coming through. You hear me okay? Good. I thank the Lord for the privilege of uh, preaching God's word tonight. And I uh, thank you for all the prayers. Because, you know, I'm not really nervous. That's unusual. <laughs> kind of scary. <laughs> but I praise the Lord for uh, being able to be here tonight with you. Um, I, uh, in preparation for this message, uh, there's something happened in my own personal life recently that has prompted me to prepare this message. And so uh, I've entitled it Reformation or Transformation. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And Father, a sure guide through your word, Father, to find salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no other. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done in, in that process of drawing us to you so they could see your son and call upon him. We pray now that you'd bless this time and enable me, Lord, to project the word of God clearly and accurately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You can go to Burger King and have it your way. And so it is with much of mainstream religion today. You can also have it your way. For it only requires a veneer of Christianity. Something very shallow. Only a reformation is required at most. Just look good on the outside. I wonder how many try to get by that way. It's an easy religion, but it isn't easy at the end, is it? No, there's a coming a day when we will be before God and answer for ourselves. But if we're looking for the truth about God and about ourselves, if we want to be right with God, we're going to need to go further than just skin deep. To be right with God requires a transformation. Nothing short of that. I'm going to give you a little bit of my testimony as I begin here because it's really uh, what it all begins with. But back in June of 1973, God performed a miracle in my life. Nothing short of that. Every one of us who knows him, it's a miracle. And what he has done, he saved me. I couldn't get over that. He saved me. I didn't realize it then, but I was a self-righteous person, you see. I was kind to others. I was considerate. I was thoughtful of others. And I thought I was good enough. Not that I didn't sin in other ways, but that was my primary thing, as I was self-righteous. But God showed me what I really was. And God used the book of Romans and impressed upon me my utter sinfulness before him. I became convicted over my sins. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, For all our righteousness, righteousness is as filthy rags. But God used the book of Romans in my life. And I just want to re relate to you several of those verses. Although I read through the book of Romans, 
And that's what God used to draw me to himself and to Jesus Christ. Romans 3.10, we all know that. For there is none righteous, no, not one. That spoke to me right away, didn't it? Yeah, it would. It did. And then further on in that chapter, verse 23, for for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then I came to chapter 6 in verse 23, and it says, For the wages of sin is death. There's a payday coming one day. I realize that. My sins need to be accounted for. You see, God was working in me already. God's word had stirred me greatly. And it was as if God had knocked down all those supports that held me up my own self-righteousness, and my own supposed goodness. And he brought me to my knees before him. I was undone already at that point. He broke me. Praise God. I mean, it happened just like that. I, I had no religion before that. I mean, I was doing my own thing, you know. I didn't need reformation, you see. I needed God's forgiveness. I needed his forgiveness, and I knew that. You see, the conviction of my sins brought me to acknowledge and to confess my sins to God. And because I meant business with God, he pointed me to Jesus Christ and what he had done for me. It said in the book of Romans again, verse 5, chapter 5 and verse 8, but God commendeth or proved his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, and that spoke to me personally. And all I did then was simply call upon the name of the Lord. We were told in John, I mean in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he saved me. This is how God performed a miracle in my life, through these means right here. And when I opened up my life to him, it was like my night had turned to day. I couldn't get over the hymns we were singing tonight, too. So much of it relates to what I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, Who picked those out, I wonder? And uh, it's, it's just amazing. But when I opened my life to God, it was like my night had turned to day. Oh, I had such joy and gratitude and thankfulness. The burden and the guilt of my sins were removed, taken away. And the thing about it is, I knew it. I felt it even. That sounds maybe strange, but if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, and I didn't read that for some some years afterwards, but I could relate to it right away because Pilgrim had that burden on his back, didn't he? Yeah, and it got heavier and heavier. And it's exactly what happened to me. And it brought me down. It broke me, just like it did Pilgrim. And so I could relate to that. Oh, but a wonderful thing, how my sins were taken away, and I knew it. And I had a great hunger then, and a great thirst to know God's word. And yes, I soaked it up like a sponge. I did. I couldn't get enough of it. I I mean, I worked on the railroad back in that day, and uh, working on the road on the freight trains mostly, and there was a lot of time where you'd be sitting to wait to get yarded or whatever, you know, and so you had a lot of hours sometimes to read or to, well, you're not supposed to read. But you're not supposed to sleep either. 
And when it's the middle of the night, you know, I could put that light on up above me and I got up my little New Testament or whatever and I'd read and read and read and read to pass the time and also to benefit myself. And so God spoke to me. But you know, in time I began to read commentaries in order to understand God's word more fully. But in doing so, I became confused. Maybe some of you have experienced that as well. One commentator would say this, and another one would say that, and they both, or all of them, used the Greek language in order to support their interpretation. Something's wrong here. It really puzzled me. How could this be, I wondered to myself. I knew what had happened to me within me, and yet most of the commentators presented something far less life-changing in getting saved. To me, 2 Corinthians 5.17 was real, even at the beginning. It spoke to me. It, it was something that happened to me. We all know it, don't we? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, what? He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That happened to me, literally. And I'll never got over it. I never will get over it. And I'll never forget that time in my life either. And so I needed answers to settle my mind on these things so that I could speak boldly for Christ. I didn't want to be confused about these things. I needed to know. It was and it has always been very important for me that I can accurately and precisely understand what God's Word has, has said to us. And you know, as I look back in retrospect, the driving force for me uprooting my family that was in 1980, and going to seminary at 38 years of age was to learn the Greek language, believe it or not. That was the driving force for me to go to school. I wanted not to be confused anymore. I wanted to know what did God say in his word, even in the Greek language, because that's the basis of it. And so I went to school to learn the Greek language, and I learned it sufficiently well so as not to be tossed to and fro. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, you don't have to turn there, I've gotten it written down here. But Ephesians 4, verses 14 and 15, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ. And so after three years, I came away realizing that much of modern scholarship had twisted what God had said. They did it in various ways. They used different versions to support what they believed. They uh, used the syntax of, of the Greek language, in other words, how words work together and fit together in a sentence to say what they believed it meant. There was many different ways, I suppose, they can, they can turn things to say something that it doesn't say. But we need to be careful in using commentaries in Bibles with notes, especially those that are more recent, although even some of the older ones have problems. Because you know what they're doing in those notes? They have a theology that they're presenting to you in those notes, and it may not be what the Bible teaches. You know, as a student of the scriptures, really, we need to really uh, match scripture with scripture, don't we? It's like it says, and I think it is Isaiah, here a little, there a little, 
And you add things together in your mind, and you can understand what God intended. That's to be our, our commentary, really. Although I still use some commentaries. But you have to be careful. Yes, I believe Second Corinthians 5.17 speaks to every soul that has been born of God. I believe it happens. If it hasn't happened, you need to consider something. You need to consider just what you have. Because there needs to be a death to sin in coming to Jesus Christ for life. It would be impossible for God to give life to an individual who still is alive, very alive, to sin. It would be contradictory, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. There needs to be a death to sin. And God brings us to that point. And we're going to look at that tonight. Unless there is first a death, we cannot have the life of God. But though we have died to sin, there's a problem, isn't there? Because as Brother Tannis said this morning, uh, even though we've died to sin, we still have a body of flesh and a sin nature. Uh, There's a wrestling that goes on throughout our life. It won't stop until the day we were with him. We're battling every day. Some days are better than others, but we all we need to get up if we're fallen, confess our sins. And what does he say he's going to do? He's going to forgive us. He sees our heart. He sees the genuineness of our plea. And if it is real, he forgives. And we can go on and we can be what he would have us to be from that day forward. Romans chapter 7 speaks to this ongoing battle that we have against sin. It's a very helpful chapter to read. Even Paul wrestled with that. And, uh, and so there's hope for us too. But God wills for us to be an example of the believer to a lost world. One thing is sure, if we don't start right, it is certain that we're not going to end up right. In fact, it's only going to get worse as we get older. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to believe the serpent's lie and fell into sin and condemnation, our one need all through the millennia of time has been deliverance from sin and its penalty. That's our need. That's the need of mankind. The whole Bible teaches us this. Now, I didn't realize it at the time I got saved, but the churches had been going through a great crisis in many areas back when I got saved in 73. One of the issues was the King James Version as opposed to the other versions. Another one was separation from sin. How important is that? Well, it is important, isn't it? If you come to God, what did you do with your sin? You left it at the cross. You left it at the feet of the cross, didn't you? You died with him at the cross. What about the Lordship of Christ? Was it necessary or is it necessary? It is. And, of course, repentance. Those are just some of the issues, and those are the main ones that I was impressed upon uh, as I went through uh, those days. But over time, each one of these areas of doctrine have been largely rejected by mainstream Christianity. And the answers to these questions about separation and lordship and repentance in the King James, three of these will be answered by this message, and the fourth can be inferred very easily from what I'm saying tonight. 
It was only very recently that I have been made aware, acutely aware, of a religious movement which has grown greatly in popularity these last 25 years, and that teaches free grace and simple faith alone for salvation. A biblical repentance of sin is not necessary. It was pointed out to me that nowhere does the Apostle John use the word repent or repentance. I suppose they built a doctrine because of that. I don't know. This individual I talked to mentioned that. But the doctrine of repentance of sin is clearly taught by the Apostle John in his gospel and also in his epistles. Last Wednesday, Jack, very effectively, I believe, used 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, to show this powerful passage there about sin and the Christian. Well, let me say first that the book, 66 books which comprise the Bible are in complete harmony with each other. One does not oppose in some way to another book. They're all in harmony together, aren't they? It has to be that way. It says in first, or 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible teaches that the Jews needed to repent of sin. And the Bible also teaches that the Gentiles need to repent of sin. In fact, we're told in Acts 17.30, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That covers everybody, doesn't it? Pretty clearly, too. There's no escaping it. Paul, when he spoke to King Agrippa, King Agrippa in Acts 26.20 said this, But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. That word meet means befitting of repentance. Repentance is an integral part of the work of God in saving a soul. It is a preparatory work to believing. You cannot believe savingly until there's a change in your thinking about your sin. It must be that way. That's the way God has made it. Listen to Romans 2.4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The word leadeth there means to bring, to induce, to drive. Another example is Proverbs 16, verses 1 and 2. The preparations in the heart of man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Oh yes, sin is the root problem of man, and we must come to God on his terms, not ours. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end of what are the ways of death. Most people are satisfied with going their own way, justifying themselves. But there's a payday coming one day. There's a wage earned for sin.
Unless we receive God's remedy, there will be a sting in our death. The Bible tells us that what? 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is what? Sin. So people that are unrepentant and die in their sins, there's a sting in their death. Just as all three persons of the Trinity had a part in the creation of the universe and the creation of man, so too all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, take an active part in the salvation of man. I want us to look briefly tonight at the Gospel of John to show this because that is the area of the, of the scriptures that was pointed out to me that there's no repent or repentance mentioned in that book. And so I will use John to show repentance. You can turn with me to John chapter 6 and we're going to begin at verse 37. I'm actually over half done with my message already. Is that the real time? I guess it is. But John 6, verse 37. What is that? Is that my, my gizmo here? Let me read to you from John chapter 6. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone that seeth, the Bible says there, that word seeth means to consider. Everyone that considers or perceives or discerns the Son will be given. We are given by the Father to the Son through his drawing power in repentance. Look at verse 44 and 45 because this is where I'm going to spend more of my time. Verse 44 says, No man can come to me. This is our Lord's words here. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. You see, God the Father must draw all who will be saved. I looked it up in Strong's Concordance. It's a wonderful book to have handy to use. It's the first place you go, really, isn't it, Strong's? I find it very beneficial. But in Strong's Concordance, the, word, the meaning of the word draw is to drag. To drag. Then I have a Webster's 1828 dictionary, and it states this. It means to pull, to haul, to draw along the ground by main, by main force. There's a Bible commentator, or there's several that I really appreciate, but there's this Bible commentator who, whom I respect very much. His name is Matthew Poole, uh, who lived in the 1600s, said this. He says, to draw is to pull along, to haul, to cause to move forward by force applied in advance of the thing moved. 
And in referring to verse 44, he says this. He states, it is a drawing by the Father, a divine power put forth upon the soul of man, by which it is made obedient to the heavenly call and willing to close with the offer of Christ in the gospel. You see, to to repent is no light thing. In fact, it's the hardest thing we'll ever do in our life because we're confronted with our own sins and know what to do about it. But Matthew Poole goes on here and says on verse 44, Though no such thing can necessarily be concluded from the word draw, yet it is easily concluded from the nature of the motion in coming to Christ. I hope I haven't said it too quickly to have you grasp that, but it naturally follows, in other words. One of two things is going to happen in a soul when he is shown his sinfulness. Either he will be drawn by God and come to Jesus Christ, as what happened to me and many, many of you here, I'm sure. Or he will persist in his sins and one day receive the wages for those sins. Those are the only two choices. Continue on the way you are or open up your life to God and let him change your life. It's a life-changing gospel is what it is. It's not just a momentary thing that, oh, I've taken care of that now. I can just go on my way. That's not true Christianity at all. That's a fake. And it'll never save you. Uh, I want to read John chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Jesus said, Therefore God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. The word reproved means discovered. He wants to do things in secret, hidden. But it says in verse 21, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And so it is with a Christian. You come to the light, don't you? You don't flee it, you come to it. Praise God for the change that he brings about in a life. We need to listen, because if we do not allow God to break up the fallow ground of our hearts, rooting up the sin and exposing it before us, we cannot be saved. That's what he does. He roots up our sins so we can see them. It's like a plowman that plows the field and uproots the, the weeds, exposes them. So that they will die, right? Well, same with us. We need to see our sins as God does. True repentance requires that, the, that God the Father draws us through this, and I call it a crucible. It's one word that says a lot of words. And actually what it means, it's like a melting pot, if you will. But having repented, it is only one thing that we need to do, and that's to look to Jesus and live. Remember John 3.14? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that's a representation of sin, the serpent. 
And then Jesus Christ was put in that place, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What an incomparable love was demonstrated on our behalf. And I guess I've never gotten over it. Never. Oh, I've strayed like anyone else. But you know, God's not going to leave us alone, is he? Huh? If you're his, is he going to just let you go off and destroy yourself like that? No, he's promised to come in and get you. Oh, he'll chasten us. I've gone through some chastening. I could tell you about it, but I won't right now. But that's because he loves me and he loves you. Not only are the Father and the Son active in our salvation, though, the Holy Spirit of God is also takes a part. Because the means whereby we are impressed to respond to this glorious gospel is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in bringing us to Jesus Christ. I'm going to uh, read from John again, chapter 16. Verse 7 through 11, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is our Lord speaking again. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Notice that he is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's not just a force or something. He's a person. He is a person and he will reprove, in other words, convince or prove guilty through the Spirit of God. When we come to Jesus Christ and receive him, we are his forever. The ups and the downs. Like my dad used to say, the vicissitudes of life. Have you ever heard that word before? I heard it a lot when I was at home. My dad, liked, he used to read the dictionary when he was a kid. I mean, he was kind of self-taught. He only went through, what, sixth grade or something. And he'd buy all these different books on different subjects and study them. And he read the dictionary all the time. And so he'd come up with stuff like that, you know. But I really appreciated him. But he is a person. And he will reprove and convince us of our sins. And I'm going to close now with just some thoughts here that parallel with what we heard this morning from Brother Tannis. God has a grand purpose to accomplish through us. For God would use us in bringing other souls to Jesus Christ. Why? Because God's Holy Spirit lives in us, doesn't he? Yes, he's given it to us. We're to be lights in this world, aren't we? You don't put it under a bushel, you put it on a hill, don't you? Yeah, we're lights in the world of darkness. And the more we're walking with the Lord, the brighter that light shines because the darkness is getting darker and darker as the years go by. But our lives and our lips can testify to the power that is in the gospel. You and I can live it out before an unsaved world. Oh, they may not come up to us and talk to us about it, but they see it. 
And they take note of it because it's so unusual. It's very important to be an example of the believer by our lives and by our words. You know, that's one of the reasons God left us here. He could have just taken us home when we got saved, couldn't he? No. He has a purpose in us staying here. He wants to use us as a light in the world to draw others to him, too. Let us always seek to be an attraction to Christ. Not somebody that will say, well, what was it, Pastor talked about Gandhi? He says, I'd be a Christian, except for all the Christians. I don't want to be in that number. I want to be of the number that shines before others. Not just some phony shining, no, I mean real. Even talking to people about the Lord, you know? As God prompts me. We need to be as the Philadelphian church who had a little strength. We need to have a little strength here as we live in this Laodicean age of apostasy because that's what this age is. It's an age of apostasy. Many profess to know him, but in works they deny him. They may start and look well, but they don't finish. They drop it all and say, what's the use? They're like Demas that loved this present world and departed to his own doom. Well, that's all I have to say tonight. Let's, be, let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, 